pride. Let me pray for us and we'll uh, dive into this morning. Father, you are um, so generous to allow us a space and a, and a family like Cottonwood has given us to just freely open your word, to learn um, from you, God, to learn from your words, to direct us and guide us, to give us encouragement, um, Lord, to give us life, to call us away from sin and um, just into the light. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that's what happens. I pray that your spirit ministers to each one of these men individually for the season of life that they're in and that you would be glorified, Jesus, that your name would be lifted high and honored um, and worthy of our praise and our affection. And so, God, we love you. We need you. We ask for your spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Well, uh, so I was trying to think of what to teach uh, to this morning, and every time I've come up here so far, I've kind of written a brand new uh, lesson that I thought was something that I would want to hear myself, or... Uh, which was more challenging, I would go, what would my father, who is in his 60s, late 60s, what would he want to hear as a non-believer? Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know. I'm outing my dad here, not you men. <laughs> oh, there we go. But that's what I was thinking. I was like, man, what would I teach my father who's an unbeliever, uh, a, a man who is wise in worldly understanding, but I think uh, in, in God's word needed some information? Uh, and so this morning was one that I kept praying about and thinking about over this weekend, uh, super excited, and it kind of hit me that I have a cool opportunity to teach a very similar lesson to what I just taught our college young adult students on Thursday night, because um, if there's something about God's Word I know is that it's for everyone, not just certain age groups. There's not certain chapters that are just for certain people. It really is the Word for God's people, all ages, all races, all um, all gender. And so what I want to do tonight is I just want to go over 1 Peter 5. We just did a series called Promise and the Pain. We finished last week, which means we hit chapter 5. So that's where we're going to be this morning. Um, now, you don't have the privilege of sitting through the first four chapters with us. So what I want to do this morning is start by explaining 1 Peter, explaining what the promise in the pain is that we talked about in our young adult group, and then I just want to just go through 1 Peter 5, verse by verse, um, and really hope that it encourages some of you men this morning. So I'm going to read it all the way through, or at least until verse 11, so chapter 5, 1 through 11, and then I'll catch us up. 1 Peter chapter 5. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. 
And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen and amen. So uh, thus far in 1 Peter, what I have hammered home to our uh, younger generation is the same message that Paul is going to continually uh, nail down. And that is one that God has called us, Jesus Christ has called all of us in this room to posture our hearts and our lives in a way where we are living for the reward that he has to offer. Now this could seem outwardly selfish, and we'll explain that at the end, but Jesus really calls for us. Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, is telling the church, you are to live as if you're living for something. That you're not just to live for your own gain or little things. There is a specific uh, goal, a specific hope, a specific reward that is given to you at the end of your life, and you're to live for that. Now, what that reward is, Peter has to go through and explain, because specifically in suffering, or maybe even uh, the way I put it to our young adults, uh, not just suffering, but sometimes the mundane seasons of life, like the boring 9 to 5 Tuesday afternoon, you get home, there's nothing tragic happening at home, but there's nothing really flaring up, creating spark and favor and joy in life. In those two seasons, you're to live for the glory of Christ returning. So you're not to live for, I want to be in heaven because I will be healed one day. Now that is a benefit of being in the presence of Jesus, but that's not what 1 Peter tells us to live for. Not leisure, not family. That's a a big one in the church. Man, I want to be in heaven because that's where my family who has passed, that's where they are. But Jesus, or Peter says, but the real reward's Jesus. That's just a benefit. That's a secondary gain the real reward, the thing we are to live for is Jesus. Let me show you in First Peter where it says this. First Peter 3, 18, Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God by putting to death the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So why did Jesus die? That he may bring us, all of us, men in this room, whether you're sinful, whether you've uh, done the most unimaginable thing in your life, whether you are the best person that you think you know, uh, he has died for you that he may bring you in the presence of the Father. That is it. That is the reason Jesus Christ died for you. Now, why? What do we find in the Father? Well, uh, I'm not going to read too many of the Psalms, but my favorite Psalm, Psalm 1611, says that we will be at the right hand of the Father and we will have pleasure and joy forevermore. That's what happens when, men, you are in the presence of God. When you are meeting with God, the true God of creation, there is a pleasure and joy that is to be found in him forever. Now, my kind of challenge for us this morning and the, the, the hope that I hope the Holy Spirit um, will work on our hearts is the actual question of, men, do you find pleasure and joy in the presence of God and that alone? Or are there other reasons that you follow the Lord? Because when we go through first or chapter 5, he's going to openly say, hey, uh, I'm going to ask you to live very contrary to what the world says for you to live like. And the only way you're going to be able to pursue this correctly is if you know the joy that is offered when you're in the presence of the Lord. Apart from that, you will not be able to. Let me show you what I mean by that. So uh, chapter 3, verse 4 is where I want to start. Peter 
uh, here is speaking to the women, but he's also speaking to the men. He says, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the perishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, man, most of us, if you're married in here, I think uh, you can say there are times when you want the gentle and quiet in spirit from your wife. You want her, those are good for God. Those are very pleasurable for God. But the adorning, maybe sometimes we don't wish that upon our wife. That's a very hard thing when you look at the culture, and maybe it's my generation, maybe uh, I'm just guilty of this, but my friends and I, for some reason, there's this competition of how uh, good can we make our wives seem. Like how, how much can I push up my wife in a not a holy manner, but an unholy manner where uh, she adorns life so much and finds life so much outside of what Christ has to offer. So the way we do that is we do these uh, super ridiculously expensive trips, which 26 and 27 and 28 year olds clearly can't afford. But we do these magnificent trips to Italy and to Mexico. And I'm not doing these, just to let y'all know I'm paid here. I do not make the money to do that. But my friends do. And this isn't me outing my friends, but this is a unique way of living that Christ calls us to. He goes, hey, you want to you wanna have a lavished life, an adorning life? Let it be in the quiet place of your heart for the value of Jesus Christ. That's not what the world offers, is it? Yes, sir. You could combine the two. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, you can. But what's the ultimate goal is what I want to ask. So what, at the end of the day, or have you failed if you didn't buy your wife the $1,000 purse that she wanted? Did you fail if your wife can't have all of these outward travels? Did you fail as a man or is the reward for your wife to have a heart that loves the Lord? Now, yeah, you're right. Those things aren't inherently bad. I think the Lord has given us Italy for a reason. I think there's beauty, there's beauty to be found in the world for a reason. But sometimes I think we push and push and push the things of the world, the things God has given us above the actual experience and joy that is found in the Lord alone. So uh, let me give you another example. I think this one will be hard to, to kind of push back on then. Uh, chapter 3, verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Now, I don't know about you guys, I joked about this um, a little bit on Thursday night in front of our college kids. Um, I've never pushed anyone in front of a bus, but there's been times where I was like, I kind of hope this guy very softly gets hit by a bus and maybe just broke, breaks one or two bones, which I know sounds wicked, but in reality, I've, I've wished that upon people, especially more specifically people who have wronged me, right? Like I, I'm, a, <clears throat> I'm very quick to admit, I have a very aggressive spirit is what my wife says, a very not gentle spirit, very quick to say something back, very quick to be quick-witted and, and harsh with my words. Um, but that comes from a heart that, man, when you, re when you pay me evil, you're gonna very quickly from the desire of my heart get evil back. Think about when you're driving, someone cuts you off, the first thing you want to do is honk the horn, say a few words, show them a couple body language, sign language, things that are reflective of what your heart says. It's not generally kindness. In this world, I don't think the world offers a type of living that says, hey, why don't you, uh, why don't you repay evil with good? Right? Like the people we dislike the most in this world, the people who our hearts just, you can pretend it's natural or you can just admit you have a sinful heart, but the people you naturally just don't like, it says you pay them back with blessing and love. But why? That doesn't make sense. To the world, that doesn't make sense. 
in, in your jobs, that doesn't make sense. The people who are uh, underselling you and undercutting you and doing wrong to you, to pay them back well in blessing, that doesn't make sense unless you look at the end of the word or the, the verse, unless there's a blessing that Jesus gives that's better than the reward of paying back evil for evil. Unless there's a reward that's worth going, hey, this person very openly, very openly paid evil towards me, man. He openly slandered my name. He openly did all of these things against me. I will pay back blessings to him. That doesn't make sense unless there's a reward that we're living for that Jesus has given us that's greater than that temporary reward. Again, I think First Peter has it all over. Four, uh, chapter 4, verse 13. It says this, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Oh, my apologies. Chapter 4, verse 13, not chapter 3. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So Peter says, rejoice in your suffering. Now, I don't know about you guys, but uh, social media is a huge part of my culture. Um, to me, it's like the outcry of what's going on in my friend's life. You know, when something bad's happening, I'm going to be able to tell via their social media feed. And when you go to that, man, when we are in suffering, when, when humans, when our sinful souls are in suffering, the last thing we're doing is rejoicing about how good God is. Right? Like uh, when you maybe at one point in your life didn't get the job you thought you earned or deserved, or maybe uh, at the time when your wife has made your life very difficult, maybe your children have made your life very difficult, I don't see it being the natural posture of heart for men to go, let me worship and praise how good my God is, right? It doesn't make sense. The world won't understand this. They shouldn't understand this. It's odd. It's very, it's very odd to um, have a diagnosis of health from a doctor be one that is terminal and you hear someone go, how amazing is Jesus? It doesn't make sense unless you finish reading the verse. Chapter 4, verse 13, he says, Share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad. Why? When his glory is revealed. There is a reward at the end of this life that is so much more valuable than any circumstance that we're going through. It's so much so that it should turn every circumstance into one that is the opposite of what the world would teach us. So you're suffering? Good. Praise the Lord. There's a day he's coming back when that suffering will turn into joy. Someone's done you wrong. Maybe your job has overlooked you again. Maybe you feel unqualified, unworthy, not because you are unworthy, but because someone's made you feel that way very vindictively. Good. Pray for them. Love that person. Show them blessing. Maybe your kids have disrespected you. Maybe you're in a position of leadership and uh, the people below you just aren't listening, man. They're just openly revolting against what you say. Maybe your wife is openly just trying to get back at you. Good. Pray for her. Love her. Care for her. That only makes sense when your heart actually believes that there's a reward one day coming that's greater than the momentary, the momentary reward of getting what you want. It only makes sense if there's a reward. And so this is Peter's whole, uh, his whole posture of his heart as he writes this whole letter. Um, and that's pretty much catching you guys up to chapter 5. Now I want to dive into chapter 5 a little bit. 
In verse 1, we see he says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Now, if you know uh, a little bit about the Bible, you know that Peter isn't just an elder. And, and I know not all, everyone in this room are elders, or maybe you, uh, you aren't qualified as an, an elder, but it's okay because he's going to speak to the rest of us in a moment. But there's something in a worldly position of leadership that Peter does that I think is very Christ-like that we can connect to. Because not all of you in here are elders, but I'm guessing most of you in here are leaders to some respect. Whether that's in your household, whether that's at a job, whether it's to your children. Peter is an apostle, which means he has ultimate authority in the church in this day and age. Which means anything he says is spoken as the direct words that Jesus has given him because he did walk next to Jesus for three years. He even says, I did witness, even though he denied it. He, in the moment, he did witness Jesus being arrested and crucified. He witnessed Jesus' resurrection. He witnessed Jesus' final words. He witnessed the Pentecost. He witnessed all these things. And so he has a position of authority that I think all of us can admit is higher than the one that we have. But how does he address to the people below him? Man, I come among you as a fellow elder. I come among you, I step into, from my position of leadership, I step down into one where we're equal. He's not lording himself over. And then he goes even further, he goes, man, just like you're a partaker in the things that are going to be revealed when Jesus comes back, so am I. Man, I'm shepherding the flock of God that is among you just like you are exercising oversight. Now, how do we do leadership in the church? How do you do leadership in your house? How do you do leadership in your workplace if there is a reward in Jesus that is going to be found that is greater than any monetary value or any uh, gain you can have on this side? He says, you lead not under compulsion, but willingly. Man, the question, again, I can't, in the beginning I asked the Holy Spirit to do this because I can't, I, I can't put this on you, but how do you exercise leadership in your house? Is it because you're a man and you have to look good and you have to have everything straightened out and orderly or else people are going to look down on you? Is it out of compulsion or is it eagerly because God's given you a position of leadership and you get to be a good husband and be a good father and be a good brother and be a good son? Is it eagerly? Are you excited to do these things because there's a reward for you in Jesus Christ. Not domineering over the flock, but being examples to them. Uh, my confession, and I always talk about my dad because uh, you group of men remind me of my dad in a good way, not the negative way. Um, but one thing I know that I can look at my dad is that, man, there were times where he would come b alongside us and, and do things with us. But most of the time, man, I always saw my dad as someone who just domineered over our lives. My dad made the decisions for us, which at times, man, praise the Lord that he did, because if he didn't, I would have made some dumb decisions in my, in my teenage years. So he, he domineered, but he did it in a way of fellowship and servanthood where he was in the trenches with me. He would go through whatever I went with or went through with me. Man, there's a type of leadership, and my, my dad's not a believer, but there's a type of leadership that that we as Christians should have even more than that. Man, in your workplace, in your house, with your spouse, with your children, wherever it is, do you domineer because you have been given authority or you step alongside in the difficult times? And then the question I have is why? Is it because Jesus Christ is one day going to return and you will find such a great reward in him 
for following him and, and serving like he served? Or are there other reasons you do it? Maybe selfish ambition. Maybe, maybe your kids will think you're a good dad. Is that your real only reason? That's not a bad reason. Again, earlier we said traveling is not bad. But if it's the only reason you're adorning your wife, it's the only reason you're allowing your wife to feel love so that she can finally be quiet and have the trip that she's always wanted, then I'm telling you there's a better reward. You're not living for the total reward, the full package. You're not living for the prize at the end of the day of Jesus Christ's return. There's an ultimate reward and then there's secondary rewards. Let's keep going. And when the chief shepherd appears. So why do we do all these things, man? Why do we lead in a way that is eager and by example? Why do we get into the, dirt, the hard times and the dirty times of our kids and our wives? Why do we step alongside them and carry burdens? Why at the church do we uh, become deacons and serve? Why do we do the, the difficult things that, that openly no one wants to do? Not to be good people, not to have all sorts of secondary rewards, but because of this. Verse 4, chapter 5, when the chief shepherd appears, when Jesus Christ returns, Man, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, again, I, I at the end want to make a bold statement, but um, that crown of glory that is unfading is better than anything you will receive on this side of eternity. And I think it should be the fuel for why we do what we do. I think that unfading crown is going to be being in the presence of God the Father, the Almighty, the, the power of God. Verse 5, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Um, when I was doing this study, I kind of wrote down in my personal devotion, why is it so hard for me to do this? Why is it hard for me to lead in a way that is humble? To not want some sort of like momentary um, desire be the reason I serve my wife or uh, serve the church. Man, why, why is it so hard to be humble? And I think the answer I came to in my uh, own devotion was this. I'm afraid that I won't get the credit I feel I deserve on this side of eternity. I'm afraid I won't be noticed. I'm afraid, I think the word I wrote down in my journal was that I'd be a, a nobody. Serving my life away as desperately and as 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 hard as I can, pouring all of me out for the bride of Christ and for my wife and for my family and for my loved ones. And if I did it in true humility, I'd never get noticed. I'd be a nobody. No one would ever say, hey, good job, man. We love the way you serve. Because if I'm doing it humbly, there's a way to do it where I don't want credit. I'm doing it for a greater purpose. Yeah. Yeah, my my father as well, yeah. I beat the crap out of my kids. I mean I feel bad about it. Not yeah. anything I can for forgiveness or that, but uh, Yeah. I'm sure most of us went through the belt and the cattle. Yeah. Um you want my honest answer is that my dad was a military man, grew up in South Africa. Um, I don't know how much you know about South Africa, but um, it's almost like the Wild West. There are just like no rules. Uh, and so I 100% had that. I had a very authoritative, my dad is to me the most manly man I know, mostly out of fear for him. I mean, he's 60 and could still whoop me and my brother like he did when we were children. Um, and there's a fear that is in that. But I will tell you, my personal faith in running to the Lord has given 
and my dad never pushed this on me, and so my warning to you is there's a way to teach this to your children and show this to your children. Um, I don't know the answer to that, but when I found out that the Lord disciplines because he loves, I thought maybe that was why my dad was doing it. Maybe my dad disciplined me because he genuinely loved me. And then as I got older and as grace penetrated uh, the thickness of my stubborn soul um, and my heart, I quickly started to see that very well, that my father actually genuinely cared for me. Um, now, I don't think it always justified his uh, response out of anger, but it definitely made it much more clear. And so for you men who, who struggle with that, man, my advice is create a pathway for your kids to see the grace of the Lord. Um, if they see that clearly, surely they'll see clearly the love you have for them. Because if you're showing them the love that the Father has for them, which is greater than any of you have for your children, God, we can admit, God loves your children more than you love your children, which is a hard pill to swallow, but it's true. And if you show them that, genuinely show them that through these things, through now serving, through confession. Um, I don't think I've ever, I've argued with my dad about this. I don't think I've ever heard him say, I'm sorry for anything to my mother, to me, to anyone. He'll say he has, but he's never had a heart of humility of getting down there and being genuine, at least, and maybe it's just an over-emotional response in the moment. Maybe he has, but uh, that seeing that in someone um, shows you the value that they think you hold. Um, so for some men, I think the answer is just being genuinely apologetic towards your children when you were wrong. Now, there were times you disciplined your child and it was out of a good posture of heart and it was probably for the right reason. I don't want to take any of that away. Discipline is a beautiful thing when operated correctly. Um, that's why Proverbs talks about it so often. However, when you are wrong, I think there's a way to genuinely repent and apologize that is goes beyond words. Um, yeah. 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 That's beautiful. Yeah. I, I, that's, I mean, amen to that. If you're, I'll say it again, if you're operating out of a, a leadership with humility, then when you're wrong, you don't mind admitting you're wrong because that doesn't take your leadership away. Being wrong does not remove you from leadership. It just creates an opportunity for grace to be extended. It's the gospel over and over and over again. So God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, man, I think the hardest thing for us is to operate in humility because we're scared of that exactly. That's a perfect example. I can't apologize to my wife sometimes because I'm scared that's going to create this like precedent for next time or precedent for next time that we have an argument that she's going to go, well, you, this is like last time. You were wrong. And then in me, that's going to create more anger and more rage. Right? And so, but that's not true. That's just what I believe in that moment. Humility, if you want ultimately the best type of leadership, operate in humility. Apologize when you need to apologize. Repent to the Lord when you need to repent. It doesn't take away leadership. It makes leadership stronger is what Peter is getting at. So, man, some men in here need to call their kids and, and out of the brokenness of their heart because the Holy Spirit has, has pushed it on you and gone, hey, you were... You were wrong here. And, and listen, kids, don't forget. You don't forget when you and your dad butted heads. To this day, you still remember probably a few incidents, right? I mean, I do. I can, my dad picked me up in the front yard one time in front of all my friends at my birthday party, upside down. My dad's 6'5", 250 pounds, big man, upside down in front of all my friends with one foot. I'll never, ever forget that day. It was an embarrassing day in my life. Did I deserve it? Yes. Maybe not like that, though. 
But here's the thing. We all remember this. Your kids remember these moments that impact their lives forever. Maybe some men here who are in Christ need to apologize, humble themselves in those moments and go, hey, I don't know if you remember this or not, but I wronged you. That was wrong. That's not what a good leader does. Because not only now are you teaching them how to be a humble servant and a humble leader, you yourself are operating in humility. So let's, let's keep going. That was a great question. Thank you, sir. Verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Now, we can walk in humility, men, because there's a day coming when Jesus Christ returns, and those who walk in humility, according to Matthew 13, 43, will shine brighter in the days of glory than the sun. There, there's a day when the kingdom of Jesus Christ is lit up by humble nobody men who walked in humility their entire life, serving the bride of Christ with all they had. And on that day, Jesus Christ raises them up and allows them with his glory to shine brighter than the sun. Listen, I don't care who you look up to in this world, whether it's Tony Robbins or any of those other guys, there's a day coming when the humble, the humble of humble, men who, who walk this planet their entire lives without asking for one note of uh, respect or demanding respect or being noticed, they just walk in humility because they know there's a day coming when they shine brighter than anything this world has to offer. And that's not the reward. The reward is Jesus, but that day is coming in him. And so because of this, we can humble ourselves because we know God's going to exalt us. So listen, you can be a good husband, and it's okay if you think you're losing some brownie points or some manly points by being a genuinely gentle, soft, loving husband because you don't, your reward isn't what your other friends think right now or what your neighbors think right now or what your coworkers think right now. There's a day coming when God will exalt the humble. Those leaders who served in humility, there's a day coming that he exalts them and that's better than any exaltation that anyone else can give you. There's a day coming when Jesus Christ returns and Peter over and over and over again says, whether it's in the mundane or the suffering, this is why we live. There's a day coming we get to rise with Christ. All right, verse 7, let's, he flips it a little bit here and moves forward. He says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, man, listen, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Um, so I told you, man, I'm from South Africa. Um, I'll never forget, we went to the Kruger National Park, which is the, like the Yellowstone National Park um, up in America, but uh, way better, in my opinion, because there's lions and leopards and cheetahs and just much more wild animals. But uh, when I, we used to go regularly almost every other summer, and there's this one section of the park where you're not allowed to get out of your car. I mean, you're allowed to. No one's going to stop you other than a lion. But uh, there's this part where there's a rest stop where you can get out, but there's no, there's no fencing. So it's just a restroom. Um, it's like one of those like daredevil spots where it's like if you think you can pee fast enough, if you have bladder problems, do not try. This is not the place to like test your manliness. Um, and so my dad, every year, it would be on our way to Impongani, which is where we would drive through to stay. Um, every year he would drive through and he would stop there and he would roll down the windows and he would just wait for, you know, a good crowd. And we had this soundtrack. I don't know why we had this. This is just my dad. That was the, the sound of wild animals. So it had all the animal calls. It had giraffes, leopards, all their mating calls, their, 
you know, just different recordings of, and my dad would crank his volume all the way up and get the lion's roar, the, like a genuine recording of a lion roaring, and he would just wait for the right time for it to get a little bit quiet where you can hear the turtle doves, and he would push play. And you just see people all of a sudden, this lion roaring, and then everyone's zipping up their pants, they're running, diving into their car. Uh, one, one time I saw this old lady, uh, she was a grandma, I believe she dove through the window. Uh, I didn't know that she could be that athletic, but she was. Um, it, it's, it, it's insane what will happen when you're near a genuine call of a lion. Now in the Kruger, you can hear it at night from miles away, so they, they will just randomly at night, they will, they will do this, uh, whether it's a mating call or an aggressive call, whatever they want to do, whether they're uh, too close in territory to one another, they'll do this roar that will make, even at 3 a.m. in the morning when you're sleeping safely in your tent, in a gated, electric-wired community, it'll make the hairs on your body stand up. And, and what I think is, yes? No, he was not. My, my father's not a believer. He loves, that's his favorite thing in the world, man. That's what he lives for is that moment where people, he just gets to see people all frantic. Um, but this is, this is what I found interesting when I read this. I, I, I think all of us in here, when we think of Satan, we think of like slithery, slimy Genesis 1 trying to trick us. He's trying to create your fall and stumble without any, any sort of... Um, without any sort of warning. But here in 1 Peter, Peter says, no, no, he's not, he's not trying to sneakily get you. He, he's like a lion roaring. And, and again, I don't know how many of you have ever experienced this, but I've firsthand experienced this. There's no way a lion's sneaking up to you when he's roaring. But you know what it does? It, it scares you. It, it, it creates anxiety and fear, and it cripples you to the point where um, ladies who are in their mid-70s will dive headfirst through a window because it's so much adrenaline, and, and this is what Satan does. In the suffering, in the mundane, Satan isn't always just trying to sneak his way into your life to get you to sin and fall. That's not oftentimes what creates this massive fallout between you and the Lord. No, no, instead it's the roaring lion of Satan it's the world going, hey, hey, you need to be a man right now. It's Satan in your face going, you know what real men do? They take care of this. You're going to let your wife talk to you like that? No, 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 you need to, don't let her do that. It's the fear and the crippling anxiety of the roaring lion going, hey, hey, what are you doing? Are you, do you hear me? Do you, what are they going to think about you? It's in that moment that the roaring lion will devour you. Because not one, he came up and snuck up on you, but because he came up in a way that caused you to paralyze in fear, not knowing what to do, because you weren't looking at the true reward. He, he takes your eyes off of the reward. He goes, hey, I know Jesus is coming back, but right now this is important. You don't even know if you really believe that yet. Let's, let's figure out what's going on right here. He's loud. He's aggressive. He'll take your eyes off of the true reward, which in Hebrews 12, Jesus says, hey, hey, just keep your eyes on the perfecter and founder of your faith. Just endure. Keep running one step forward, one step at a time. This is a race. Wait till the end for your reward. And Satan is just in the middle of the race trying to distract you, distract you and paralyze you and create anxiety and pride. And he's going, hey, hey, you need to take care of this right now the way a man takes care of this. Satan is like the lion roaring. He's not hiding. He's not afraid of you. Satan's afraid of Christ. He's not afraid of you. 
In South Africa, there's another thing called Lion Parks, and this is insane to me. You can look this up, man. Uh, average 10, 10 Americans die every year in South Africa at some sort of safari retreat. Um, 10. And the reason is, is because they don't respect the lion. They don't respect it. What happens is they want a picture with, whether it's a lion farm, which is essentially you drive through and there's prides of lions around you, or the Kruger National Park, or maybe a private safari lodge, or maybe a hunting trip. These men in America, for some reason, and you can watch videos on YouTube, also leopards in India, people just don't respect these animals. They, they think it's like a game. How close can I get to this? And so 10 men a year die taking pictures and getting close to these animals. Yes, sir. Same thing. Yeah, people don't, we don't respect. Listen, when a lion roars and you're South African, that means get away. That's why that old lady jumped through that, that, uh, that window. It means get away. But there are some of us who, when, when sin is roaring, when things are, wildfires are spreading, you're like, I wonder how close I can get to this. I'm not saying I want to dive into it. I'm not saying I want to be devoured by the, listen, no one who has ever been eaten by a lion planned on getting eaten by a lion. They didn't go, oh, today I want to get eaten. No, no, they thought they could outsmart and outwork the situation. Right? One time we saw this family. It wasn't a lion. It was a cheetah, and cheetahs are much smaller, yet still respect a cheetah. He wanted to see how close he could get. We saw this firsthand uh, about 100 yards away, left his door open, get, got out, which I can only assume was an American because South Africans don't do this, and he walked with his camera phone towards the cheetah. It was just laying on the side of the road. And in my head, I was like, get my phone out. I'm about to have a million hit YouTube video. I'm about to make some money. This guy's about to get eaten. And he left his door open thinking, I could see his process of thought. I can get back in here and close it and nothing will get me. So here's my question. Yeah, a cheetah, the fastest land mammal. Here's my question. Don't we do this with the sin in our lives? Don't some of you go, hey, I can go downstairs in my basement or in my quiet room with my laptop by myself. I'm not going to fall this time. I'm just going to go. I'm going to go read emails, right? I mean, how many of us over and over again, we're just opening the door and seeing how close we can get only to then be devoured. No, Peter's word is men resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that there is a reward greater than the momentary pleasure of whatever it is you're seeking. Maybe it's a momentary fix. Maybe it's a, hey, I want to see how close I can get. Maybe it's just a unique opportunity. Maybe it's respect in your house. Which again, men, you should manage your household carefully, absolutely. But does that mean yelling aggressively? Does that mean being prideful and proud? Or is it in humility? Man, lust is another one. Man, how do you deal with this? Do you resist it? Which means you, you, you fight every avenue. You don't even, some of you are, my wife wouldn't, she doesn't want to go to any of those national parks. Which, which breaks my heart because it's like my favorite thing in the world. But that's how far she's willing to resist the lion. She's that afraid of these wild animals that she's like, I'm not even going in the park. Why would you do that? She's like, I have uh, National Geographic. I'll just sit there from the comfort of my TV and watch it knowing I'm not going to die. Right? So, man, how far are you willing to go to resist? And listen, is it rooted in knowing this, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world? Listen, the lion roaring, Satan roaring, whether it's for lust, whether it's for pride, whether it's for selfish gain, you're not the only one. Why don't we band up as a brotherhood and figure out who else is, who else is hearing the same roar and who else is paralyzed so that we can shake each other when we hear the roar and go, hey, let's get out of here. 
let's get, let's get to safety. Let's not stay here. Are you running to your brotherhood? Because you're more than likely not the only one. Despite Satan in that moment, when the lion's roaring in this room, if there was a lion here right now and he roared, in that moment, each one of us th would think, I'm the only one who's afraid. I'm the only one who notices it. What should I do to get out of here? But in reality, there's a brotherhood of people who hear and fear and listen to the same roaring lion. Do we trust our brothers? And then get this, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So why do we resist, man? Why do you resist temptation? Why do you resist looking like the world? Why do you resist this type of leadership that's domineering and aggressive or and only, only leads because it wants money? Why do, you, why do you not operate in humility towards your family, towards your loved one, towards your coworkers, towards those who are under you at work? My, my theory based on what First Peter is saying is that we, myself included, don't do this because we don't actually believe at times that there's a day where Christ himself will restore us, confirm us, strengthen us, and establish us in him. We forget that day. When you're meeting with the Lord in the mornings in your quiet time, are you just looking for a word to get by that day? Because it, it'll do that. Meeting with the Lord in the morning is a beautiful thing. Coming to Bible study is a beautiful thing because it'll encourage you to keep going. But is Jesus Christ your ultimate reward? Psalm 1911, do you find pleasure and joy forevermore at his right hand? When you are in the presence of God, is that all you want for the rest of your life? Is it worth resisting the call of sin? Is it, is it worth living opposite from what the world tells you to live like as men? Is it worth it if one day Jesus Christ returns and he raises you up with him? Is it worth it? I promise I didn't plan that although it would have been awesome. Is it worth it? Is, it? is it worth resisting sin? Is it worth being a husband that walks in humility, that walks in gentleness? Is it, is it worth it if Jesus Christ is your reward? My question that I leave you guys with is this. This is, this is the question I have for you. I know that's distracting, but um, do you find the presence of God worth it? Because here, here's my honest, uh, my honest answer. When we're in heaven, it's not about seeing your family. That, that's a reward, but it's not, that's not the ultimate reward. It's not about your health. Although some of us have health problems, Jesus will heal those, yes. But that's not the ultimate reward. Listen, man, you will not resist and do all of these things that Peter so, so eloquently puts it in front of us. You will not repay evil with good. You will not do any of that if being with God for eternity is not the utmost best reward that you can receive. If you don't lower yourself, posture your heart in a way that's beneath the Lord where he is your reward, you will not do any of this. Because here's the thing, health you're only going to go so far for health. Some of us know that, right? Like, you're, how many times do we know Whataburger and fast food is not the way we need to be eating? But listen, our health isn't that important. A Whataburger at Whataburger with double cheese and double meat for me momentarily is better than me thinking of my long-term health. So it can't be health, right? It can't, be, it can't just be family because uh, so many of us in here have family who we love. We don't see them all that often. I don't drive to my family's house every day to see them. Now, I love my family and I will drive out there, but there's got to be something more stirring and more fueling to my soul that is a reward that's going to make this worth it. 
Like my flesh, my lust, my sin, I have to, I have, to have a hope that's stronger than just, oh, God will take these away. Because part of me secretly wants those at times. My heart's wicked, it's evil. Man, part of me sometimes wants those. That's why we partake in the things we partake in. That's why we think the way about other women who aren't our wives the way we do. There's got to be an utmost call, an utmost reward in Jesus Christ, in his returning, that is the reason you do everything. And that in that, we find freedom and success and joy and pleasure forevermore. And so that's my, my call this morning to the men of Cottonwood is why are you doing the things you're doing? Why are you pursuing holiness? Why are you pursuing to put to death sin? Why are you pursuing all the things you're pursuing? To, not, to this morning when the Holy Spirit is convicting you, going, hey, you could probably be a more loving husband. Hey, you could probably do these things. Why? Is it just to do them, to save face, to feel better, to have a better relationship? Or is there a God who is one day returning for his people and you're part of those people and he's your reward? He gives an unfading crown. So, man, I, I appreciate you guys listening to a 26-year-old rant for an hour or however long it's been. Um, and it's an honor talking to you guys, and I love it. But I really hope the Holy Spirit this morning uh, really allowed First Peter's words to come out to us. Because it's one that's encouraging to me, and, and I'm hoping it's so for you guys. So let me pray, and then we can talk or, or dismiss or however you guys usually end this thing. But let me pray for us. Father, you are... You are good beyond anything that this world has to offer. Lord, not only have you given us new life in Christ, but you've given us a new mind, a new soul, a new heart that does things differently than the death that we used to walk in. Lord, a lot of us in here have new life and we walk in the newness of Christ, but your spirit is still sanctifying us and pushing us and, and teaching us and giving us new reasons to live for Christ every day. And I pray that your Holy Spirit this morning would would do more than just put a suggestion on the hearts of men, but instead would engrave his word on the hearts of your children. Because, Lord, that's what all of us are in here. No matter our age, no matter, no matter our maturity, biblically or spiritually, Lord, we're all your children just following your will. And this morning I pray that men would take a step forward of faith, knowing that, Jesus, you are coming back one day. You are judging the righteous and the unrighteous, and there's nothing good in us except for you. And that's what's calling us to be men this morning, to be humble, submissive, loving, gentle men towards our wives, our children, our families, our co-workers. Lord, it's the reason we get to repay evil with good and blessing. It's not because we're good men or look good or do anything. It's because you are our reward. And so I pray we walk in that faith this morning, in the faith that in you there is pleasure and joy forevermore. Jesus, we love you. We we pray for your return, because on that day we will worship at the feast of banquet greater than any worship we've ever experienced in your presence fully, God. We love you. We need you. In your beautiful name we pray. Amen and amen.